Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's been a year since rioters stormed the United States Capitol. Thousands of Trump supporters gathered on January 6th, fired up by the lie that Biden didn't really win the election. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. That's a lie that President Trump encouraged. A lot. And a year later, it's a lie that a majority of the Republican Party now believes. Many of us were warning about the fact that the Democrats unilaterally fundamentally altered our voting system inside 90 days. There's no question, and it's been widely reported, that there was widespread fraud and irregularities across this country. About 60% of Republican adults believe that the 2020 election was stolen. And a lot of people are worried that come 2024, nothing will change. Today on The Argument... What happens to your democracy when one party doesn't trust election results? I'm Jane Koston, and to put it bluntly, I think the concern here is that the only kind of election Republicans will recognize as fair is one where they win. And if they don't, that's an indication that the election wasn't fair. It's 2020 all over again, but this time the results get thrown out. When we look ahead to 2024, it's easy to focus on that kind of doomsday scenario. And to be clear, we need to talk about it. But I also think we should be talking about what we want our democracy to look like in the first place, so that we can tell when we're losing it. To put it another way, when you hear someone say, American democracy is in trouble, I think we might not be defining democracy in the same way. That's part of the problem. And the other is, we don't see trouble in the same way. I know. These ideas sound like a lot. But my guests today make a strong case that this is something we all can and should care about. Masha Gessen is a staff writer at The New Yorker. They were born in the Soviet Union, and you've probably read their work comparing the United States under President Trump to Russia under Vladimir Putin. My other guest is Corey Robin. He's a political scientist at Brooklyn College, and he's written about right-wing ideologies and whether Trump is breaking the country. We're approaching the one-year anniversary of what happened on January 6th, 2020. And I think this was a day that a lot of Americans, including me to some extent, said there's a group of people in this country who straight up don't believe that the election results were valid. And they believe that Trump won, but they believe that Trump won in a way in which they were willing to break into the United States Capitol to not just prove a point, but also to attempt to get the results of the election reversed. And I think I thought this was a giant monorail style scam trying to get more money for the Trump campaign, which I think is kind of true. And then on January 6th, I was like, oh, it's also a very real thing. So 
Masha, what was your reaction to what you saw that day? Were you surprised? Yeah, of course I was surprised. And I was, I mean, I was shocked, right? I'd say I had a whole range of reactions, some of which were recognition. Like, I wasn't particularly surprised, weirdly, by how easily the crowd breached the Capitol and and how little resistance it seemed at first to encounter. But to me, the most significant things about January 6th are actually what followed or what didn't follow. And Republican Congress members voting against certifying the election after the attack on the Capitol was probably the most significant outtake. Corey, what did you think? What were your reactions? I mean, I think the day of, it was also shock. I was surprised by what happened and frightened by what happened. But like Masha, I think what what is most important is what followed, but I think I have a slightly different view of what followed and what matters. The Democrats have now been in control of the federal government for nearly a year since what happened. And there's legislation on the table that could ensure that the people who vote for candidates, if a majority wins, those are the candidates that are certified. And that hasn't happened to ensure that. And I bring that up not to shift the focus away from the Republican Party, but to actually get to what I think is the much bigger problem with American politics and American government and American political culture, which is not the Republicans and the Democrats, they are problems, but it's how hard it is institutionally to actually ensure the basic premise, one of the basic premises, I should say, of democracy, which is one person, one vote, and that your vote matters. It's very, very difficult to secure laws to make that happen. So I think sort of a year after, what we need to be looking at is less something like a January 6th. That is not, I think, the roadmap for how the Republican Party looks to secure its power. It's much more taking advantage of the institutions and just the way inertia and anti-democracy is built into those institutions. You know, um, in my work, I've always been obsessed with, with a few things. And, and one of them is, how do you know what kind of time you're living in? How do you know what kind of society you're living in? And when do you know that it's changed? And in that sense, you know, January 6th is like this bottomless pit of thought because I think after January 6th, we are living in a different society, in a different country, precisely because we didn't recoil from it in shock. Because we didn't, as a country, if one can even speak of the United States as a country, have a huge collective feeling, although, you know, we're familiar with that happening, right? After 9-11, for example, as hard a fight actually as I was to behold that reaction, you know, that was a reaction that Americans had as a country, right? Americans as a country didn't have a reaction to January 6th. We didn't say this cannot have happened, right, in the way that we said in response to 9-11. And that means that we're living in a country in which January 6th is possible. It's on the menu now. And while I agree with Corey that it's probably not the roadmap, it is Part of the roadmap, it is an, uh, always an option, right? right? It, not just because it happened, but because it happened and we went on as though it hadn't happened in many ways. I want to go to something that you wrote 
earlier this year, Masha, about Viktor Orban, in which he said, after losing the 2002 election, Orban declared that the homeland cannot be in the opposition. By the homeland, he meant himself, envisioned as the only true representative of Hungary. If he wasn't in government, then the government had been hijacked. I think that is the worry, is that any victory by anyone who's not a Republican would be proof in itself that the election was rigged or was forfeit. Is that the right thing to be worried about, do you think, Masha, or the wrong thing? What do you think? Absolutely. I I think Orban is a particularly vivid example. But there's a whole sort of story about the autocratic strategy for the interim period between terms and office, which we observed in Hungary, in Israel, and in Poland. And it centers on completely delegitimizing the government that is then in office, right? So they lose an election, and the reaction is profoundly anti-democratic in the most basic sense, which is that if we lost the election, then it couldn't have been an illegitimate election. And what follows from that is that the government that is in office is an illegitimate government. So as like a basic level, it seems that accepting the results of an election is a pillar of American democracy. But I'm curious, when we talk about democratic norms, sometimes I don't think we define what those norms are. Corey, what do you think are the essential characteristics of a democracy that if you lose those, you lose the democracy? Well, I think it's two things, and one of which we have lost quite some time ago and the other, which we may be in the process of losing. But before I answer that, I should say, I, I think the the losing-having model is, is actually a little bit misleading for the following reason. I mean, I, I look at democracy as a process, and, and I, I hate to use that kind of term because it sounds so wishy-washy and vague. But what I mean by that is, is that democracy is a constant struggle to allow the people to govern themselves in as many spheres as are possible for them to govern themselves. I mean, if you go back to the ancient Greeks, right, democracy was always part of a cycle of regimes, interestingly, always coming toward the end after a series of monarchical, tyrannical, aristocratic, oligarchical as a way of rejuvenating politics. And so it has been in the modern world. You know, every democratic advance generates an anti-democratic reaction many of which have been extraordinarily successful. You know, what is Jim Crow but a massive counter-mobilization against democracy? And the reason I say this is not to get scholarly and pedantic. It's to say that one of the reasons I object to the language of losing democracy is it suggests that contestation is over forever. And while I see the kind of mobilizing attractiveness of that kind of rhetoric, it gives you a sense of the, you know, the, the fierce urgency of now— I think as a matter of political analysis, it's actually not true. That's just not the way these things often work. So that was a long preamble, but I would say the two major things about democracy are the majority rules and that the majority is able to bring democracy into an ever-expanding array of institutions that are undemocratic. And I think the second, we've seen a retreat from that beginning in the 1970s and 1980s, And I think the first, we're seeing a steady erosion of that increasingly over the case. I mean, I actually agree with Corey that defining democracy as a static thing is misleading. And I also agree that it's a process. 
I think I use a somewhat different definition. I think if we use the definition of democracy as the government of the governed, you know, then we immediately realize that democracy is never achieved, right? You can never fully have a government of the governed. What you can have is a society that is enfranchising over time more and more of the governed or fewer and fewer of the governed. And I think that's how we ought to think about democracy as a process, as a vector, rather than as a set of institutions or a stable state. Matthew Iglesias, is a former colleague of mine, wrote a piece where he was essentially arguing that if Democrats really thought that democracy was in peril, they would be doing things that they are not currently doing. Masha, as someone who thinks about this a lot, is it helpful for people to say that democracy is failing when we all have different definitions? When we're talking about this issue, is it even helpful to say is democracy failing when we don't have an agreed idea on what that means? Well, it is better to start with the question of what is democracy, or maybe maybe even better, you know, how should we govern ourselves? That does not seem to be in the realm of possibility for not just, understandably, most of our elected representatives, but most people who are in the public space talking about politics. We most of the time are all acting as though we knew exactly what democracy was, as though we knew exactly how things ought to work. And we have two opposing factions, one that is trying to make things work the way they ought to work and the other that's standing in the way. And then depending on you know where you stand, you think that the way that things ought to work is one way or, the, or, or another. And that's, you know, in a way, that's the opposite of politics, right? Politics is the process of figuring out how we should govern ourselves, how we should all live together in one city, apartment building, state, country. So, in, you know, in that, in, in that sense, I think it's, it's not terribly useful because it should go deeper. And at the same time, I think I, I haven't read this piece by Matt, but um, I also feel like there is a missing sense of urgency but I, you know, I think, and this has to do with what I said about our reaction to January 6th. Right. That, sorry to interrupt you, but if we, if we were urgent, if we were as urgent as the emails I get from the DCCC seem to want me to be, what would we be doing differently? Yeah. So what would that look like if we were urgent? Well, you know, I imagine that we'd be having like citizen assemblies, town hall meetings, talking about what is happening to us right now. We're living through generation-defining traumatic period, and I'm referring to COVID, that defies description and resists collective experience. It's a really actually hugely problematic thing that we're all experiencing trauma and we're not experiencing it together by definition, even though our trauma is perhaps similar to one another's, right? And there's very little sense of living through it collectively. We, I think, would be reckoning with the disappearance of local media in ways that don't have to do with, you know, creating nonprofit corporations that can maybe fund a couple of publications locally, but that have to do with the fundamental understanding that you can't have democracy without media that covers things that people feel are happening in their communities. That is a fundamental 
element of democracy that we sometimes remember about and then we move on to other things that don't have anything to do with community-based stuff. I think I have a slightly different take on, you know, both the question and, and also what Masha is saying, which is, I actually think people do have a strong sense of urgency. Admittedly, you know, I pay too much attention to social media, but, you know, what I see all the time is is a very strong sense of urgency. I think the problem is it's not really clear what the way out of this is. That's, you know, let's just bring this down to, like, to protect democratic elections. I mean, I also think we should be very clear about where the threat, you know, to democracy lies today. I don't think it's all of that ambiguous. The, the immediate one is, is that the Republican Party is trying to pass laws at the level of states so that it would make both make it very difficult for, or harder for people to vote, I should say, and would also allow Republican Party officials to overturn the votes that they do cast. I mean, that's a pretty straightforward threat to democracy. And I think people do have a strong sense of urgency. I see it every day and I read about it and so forth. But it's just not very clear when you have a filibuster in the Senate, what in God's name we're supposed to do. And, you know, I, I think we've lived through about 20 years of town halls and discussions and so forth. And I'm not against them at all. Um, I think that's very important to the formation of democratic, you know, majorities. But and the end of the day, I think we're all grappling with, you know, this. The, the, it's like the princess and the pea. There's this, this goddamn little thing there <laughs> that seems to be like the whole fate of the Republic depends upon. And we don't know what the hell to do about it. I, I don't think we need to um, increase the thermometer on urgency. I think, you know, the we here, which I think people is basically liberals and the left, need to like look inside and say, all right, why haven't we been able to do this? How are we going to go in these swing states and engage people who are not voting and not voting for us? And these are people who are without college degrees, who are white, black and brown and change that dynamic. And I, you know, I just don't think we have the answer to that yet. And that is the problem. And that is what we need to be focusing on. How much trouble are we in? Masha, you said a little bit at the beginning about how, you know, it's good to know where you are in this in this moment. How much trouble are we in? I think we're in a lot of trouble. And I think I'm going to also offer a sort of universal trouble measuring recipe. I think we're always in more trouble than we think we are. Because I think that there's kind of a general human tendency to adapt and history always appears to us to have been more dramatic than whatever we're living through. Because what we're living through is always just kind of normal. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, we go to the store, you know, we walk the dog. It can't possibly be as big as the things we read about in history books. And that, you know, like if you correct for it, for, for that perception, we're always in more trouble than we think we are. And, um, to approach it less impressionistically, we have a two-party system in which one party is basically an autocratic party. And what I mean by that is that it's a party that has an audience of one person, where we have one party that is a democratic party, small d, not in the sense that it is perfectly representative of the people's needs, desires, and, and political wishes, but in the sense that it addresses itself to an audience of voters. And then there's a party that addresses itself to one man who is the kingmaker in that party. 
and who then addresses himself to an audience of voters. But that's an autocratic makeup. And that is a huge shift in our political situation that has just occurred in the last five years and that I think creates a crisis. Two things. One is, I think we have the opposite problem from what Masha is describing. And that is not people thinking things are not as bad as they really are that we have to think. I, I think, in fact, it's, it's a kind of catastrophism that misses, and the reason I bring this up, and I and I, I always, I hate being in this position, I have to be honest, because I'm such a kind of depressive, pessimistic person by temperament, and I find myself in these moments having to sound not like that, and it's not my nature, but I actually happen to think it's the truth, so I'll, I'll just have to stick with that. Um, so, Masha said, you know, we're facing an autocratic party that answers to one person, and I think that's a strong claim. I, I, I think I know why Masha says that and what those sort of empirical reference points are. I think it's important to break it down a bit because, and the reason I think this is because I think we miss opportunities. So we've been talking about efforts to suppress the vote at the level of the states. There have been 10 bills in seven states, according to the Brennan Center at NYU, which is a kind of voting rights outfit, 10 bills in seven states that would allow government officials, Republican Party officials, to basically overturn the vote. Not a single one of them has passed in those seven states. And these are states, of those seven, five of them are completely republican control states, including Texas, right? And th these are Trumpist bills, right? These are pushed by Trumpist factions, and they're not passing. They're getting voted down, or they're not passing. I would like to know more about that. Who are these people? Why are they not doing this? What are they seeing? And, you know, the New York Times had a massive story about election suppression efforts at the level of state. This got one sentence, what I'm talking about. One sentence. And I think, I need to know more about this. But to know more about it, you have to, I think, suspend for a moment the notion that our story about the Republican Party is, is all sewed up and done, and we know what it is. Another sort of fact, you know, Trump got what he wanted. This is repeatedly something that people said. But the truth of the matter is, is that Trump and the Republican Party controlled the entire federal government for two years, the first two years. He was never, and, and, and forget the things he sort of pseudo-promised, you know, infrastructure bill, that kind of stuff that we know he didn't really want. We do know he wanted a wall and he wanted funding for that wall, and it was repeatedly denied to him by his own party. Yeah, I think that we have a, we, I think that that's why there's been this idea of like, ah, but what if we get Trump, but smart? And like, yes, that is a concern. But I think it's, it's important to get at like, what are we really dealing with here? And, that, and that's really what you just said is, is the, the point that I want to stress, because I think the, you know, should we think we're more in trouble or less in trouble? It's, it, it, it doesn't help us. And, and I say this as a, both a citizen and a scholar, like, and as a student of the right, like, I want to know who are these people who consistently stop the agenda and not know about it in this moralistic framework that I think we oftentimes use, which is if anybody in the Republican Party supports the positions that I support, they suddenly have integrity. They're suddenly courageous. <laughs> they're suddenly willing to take the stand. And if they don't do it, they're hacks, fascists, this, that, and the other. I would like to kind of junk that language only because I think it's probably, I, I know it has to be more complicated. And I worry that our frames 
are not only not helpful for Twitter conversations, but then start seeding how journalists are covering this. And if I thought that was helpful to rallying people, I'd say, all right, Corey, shut up, you know, just let them, you know, just it's it's politically useful. But I think we're seeing sort of diminishing returns about that kind of rhetoric over time. Hi, Jane. My name is Emily. I'm from Chicago. And I have one thing that I've been arguing about lately. And that thing is other people's animals on the internet. Should we still be obsessed with them? This is in response to Noodle the Pug. I'm tired of him. He's an old dog. Who cares? And this goes back to like Grumpy Cat, that one dog that had its tongue that was sticking out all the time, whose eyes were kind of crossed. Not that I don't love animals, but the internet has to move on. Thank you guys so much. Bye. Hi, Emily. Thanks for calling. I disagree. I think more people should put their dogs on the internet. Old dogs, young dogs, big dogs, little dogs, dogs who look sad, dogs who look happy. Because do you know what people are doing when they aren't putting dogs on the internet? They're doing something terrible. Committing crimes. If you want to lower crime, put a dog on the internet. Thank you for calling. What are you arguing about with your family, your friends, your frenemies? Tell me about the big debate you're having in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. And we might play an excerpt of it on a future episode. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, Plus, This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Trump wanted a lot of things. And I would say that part of why he did not get the things that he wanted is that the things he wanted were not necessarily in line with the desires of Mitch McConnell. Is that kind of the concern here? Not that necessarily you're going to get another Trump, but you have created the mechanisms in which someone who is more in line with what other people want can use these anti-democratic processes to seize power. Yes, and I would also question the premise that Trump didn't get what he wanted. I think there's a little bit of a sort of theory of mind problem when we talk about what Trump wanted. Because if we go back to the 2015-2016 campaign, it's very clear that Trump didn't actually want anything legislatively. No. I mean, even the wall was... It's a rhetorical you know, it device. It was a campaign line yeah. that stuck because it had a lot of resonance. Was Trump personally at all invested in seeing a physical structure in the southern border? Not at all. Trump wanted to be president and he wanted to use the presidency for personal financial gain. That's what he wanted. 
He got to be president. He got to act old Trump-like in the White House for four years, which is, I think, kind of the sum total of what he wanted. And he wanted to subvert all sorts of cultural and conventional ethics standards that existed in around the White House. And he succeeded in that very well. But if it's true, though, that the project of Trump is as, and i got to be careful here because I'm going to get myself into trouble, but is as narcissistically self-referential, let's say, as what Masha describes, then we're not really talking necessarily about a vast threat to democracy in the classic way that I think much of the discourse proceeds on the basis of. And, and that is to say, the, the fear of an authoritarian leader, the fear of an autocratic leader, the fear of a totalitarian in this country and you know historically is that they have a project to subjugate, you know, not simply to enrich themselves, not simply to stay in power, which by the way, we should point out, Trump was not able to do. And that's something, losing an election as a one-term incumbent is actually quite hard for modern presidents to do. He managed to do it. So I assume even within our narcissistic self-referential theory, staying in office was part of the plan. He wasn't able to do that. But I think we, we think the danger of these leaders is that they are going to go out and control society and reconstruct society, or at least keep it in place, if not reconstruct it. If the, the, the project of this autocratic leader is as limited, I would say, then I think we're dealing with a kind of very different beast that implicitly allows for a lot more democratic contestation, both at the level of society and at the level of the state, because this guy doesn't clearly care about what happens, what passes, what doesn't pass. I don't personally think that that's true, but I think that is the, what follows from that kind of line of argument. And frankly, I would say if that's the case, we're in far better shape than we were when we had right-wing leaders who really did have a project of social reconstruction. And we're very successful at it. And not just because they had the support of the Republican Party, but because they managed to get bipartisan support. And that is over. And that is progress. I mean, the turnout for the 2020 election was the highest turnout we've seen since I think it was 1912 or 1907. I can't remember. It's at least in over a century. When I was coming of age as a young political scientist, the big concern in all political science literature was the low voting turnout, the voter apathy. Well, that's actually been reversed with all this polarization, with all this Trumpism. So I, you know, uh, I can't remember where we were going with all of this. I just think that it's part of the story and part of the mix that I think we have to then take cognizance of. I actually think that that's a really interesting question. What is more and less dangerous is... Is it more dangerous if a party or a person has the project of sort of concerted structural change through legislative and institutional mechanisms, or is, as I would argue, you know, a totally nihilistic project of just subverting politics, subverting institutions, subverting language itself and kind of, you know, broadcasting in every possible statement and action that nothing matters. Is that more dangerous to democracy? And I think that is more dangerous to democracy. I think this is really the fundamental question that we should be addressing, which is, you know, what is the nature of the threat and is it worse or not? And I, um, I think I probably, yeah, I, I come down on the opposite side because I think Certain institutions in this country should be have to be subverted. I'm not happy 
with what the GOP and the Trump people are doing, but I think the fact that the Supreme Court has become an open question for people on the left and liberals and Democrats is a good thing, actually. It's, it's, it's been a mechanism that liberals and the left have relied upon for far too long. The chickens are coming home to roost, and it's good that people are finally questioning that. And in terms of the subversion of language, I think my read on this is slightly different. I mean, I think, you know, you have stronger majorities— in favor of the idea of the United States as an immigrant nation than you've had in a very long time. I think Trump did try to subvert the language. I think when he did, he mostly boomeranged on him. Yes, there is a portion of that base that believes what he's talking about. These were people who were mostly primed to believe all this already. But I think the, the, the major effect that I see of Trump's language is the resistance to it. This is one of the things I think both liberals and the left have been quite successful at, actually, is to call the truth the truth. I see these things as, you know, it is it is a scary moment because the things that Masha is talking about and Jane you're talking about are real and it would be foolish to deny them. But there is a kind of opening up, oddly enough, on the political landscape that we haven't seen in quite some time with voting returns, but one indication of that. I, I won't say I see some hope for because I, I can't stand that that whole language, but that I think that we need to attend to. But you know, I don't I don't disagree with that, Corey, right? It's like I think it's it's silly to have an argument about whether something is a crisis or an opportunity. <laughs> uh, like of course. <laughs> right. Is part of this issue polarization. So lots of people feel like they're being governed by someone else, being governed by the other party, being governed by their opposition. Yeah, I I think I tend to take a different view of the whole question about polarization and its relationship to democracy. It's hard for me to think of a single democratic advance in this country that was not accompanied, if not occasioned, by an intense polarization in the society. Of course, the most fundamental democratic advance in American history is the abolition of slavery. And that was preceded by a kind of polarization in the country that would make what we're talking about today, you know, seem quite minuscule. Now, I'm not arguing that polarization causally leads to democracy. I think that would be a mistake. There are many other things have to happen. But there's just no doubt that the kinds of democratic advances that we have seen, whether it is abolition or reconstruction, whether it is the emancipation of workers during the New Deal with the Wagner Act, was, you know, delivering from an autocracy that had existed. You know, we talk about autocracy, that is, that was always perceived to be the fun- one of the fundamental autocracies in the society, could not have been delivered without intense polarization polarization, I don't don't think really begins to capture the nature of the problem that we're actually confronting. Corey, was that a landline? Yeah, it seems to only ring when I'm getting interviewed, so there you are. Blast from the past. So, Yasha Monk wrote a really interesting piece in The Atlantic in 2018 called America is Not a Democracy, and one point he makes is that the Supreme Court has taken a lot of actions that at no point anyone voted for. And personally, I'm fine with that. The Supreme Court ruled in Loving versus Virginia in 1967 that interracial marriage was okay, and my parents got married. 
And the Supreme Court ruled on Obergefell. And lo, I got married. One of the challenges we see is that when people are asked, do you support this thing or do you not support this thing? They are way behind, in my view, where, say, the Supreme Court is on any number of issues. And we saw that on marriage equality or any number of things. Democracy, when you're thinking about it in those terms as majority, it's kind of scary. Like, the majority is sometimes not good. I feel like this is going to get used against me in some form, but whatever, I'll deal with that later. Absolutely. And that's why I think that reducing you know, democracy to majority rule is misleading. Let's use the example of people who never get to have a say in government. And that's immigrants, asylum seekers, especially immigrants who don't have what we call legal status, also misleadingly, in in this country. Nobody's more governed than immigrants. And nobody has less say in government. This is where always the where the rubber hits the road in any classroom or any kind of, you know, which is when you have a tyrannized numerical minority, not a powerful numerical minority, which is what we oftentimes have in this country, but a tyrannized, subjugated numerical minority. And don't we then want the courts to step in? And you brought up, Jane, the examples of Loving and Obergefell. But I I think that misses a prior step, because why did the courts need to step into those cases? What was the democracy we were talking about? We were talking about democracy at the level of states. We have a federalist structure in this country that gives extraordinary power to the states. And I think most historians of American democracy would say that that has been one of the features that has always facilitated anti-democracy. And to just get, break it down, just to be very simple about it, you know, we oftentimes look to the, the Brown decision as the pinnacle of a Supreme Court stepping in against a tyrannical majority. Well, why hadn't the federal government done anything before about the status of African Americans under Jim Crow? The House of Representatives repeatedly in the 1930s and the 1940s passed civil rights legislation to protect African Americans. The, the most democratic, the most majoritarian institution of the American government passed legislation to advance the interests of African Americans, this tyrannized, subjugated minority. What stopped them? The United States Senate. This counter-majoritarian institution, not a democratic institution, an anti-democratic institution. In this country, at least, I think we've gone through about 50 years or so of overestimating the threat of democratic majorities and underestimating the threat of tyrannical minorities, which is, I think, increasingly what, what we are seeing is the problem here. So thinking about populism, which brings us back to Trump, the worst populist ever, and specifically what Trump or a Trumpified Republican Party might do in 2024. Masha, you did a really interesting interview with Balant Magyar, who wrote a book, uh, Post-Communist Mafia State, which is the name of a band that would be awesome. And I think that you get at something I've been thinking a lot about, where it's, they have a new definition of populism, which he defines as an ideological instrument for the political program of morally unconstrained collective egoism. And he goes on to say that the egoistic voter who wants to disregard other people and help solely himself can express this in a collective more easily than alone. And I think that that gets at the basic thing that really gets me about January 6th is that the idea is that Trump won 
or he would have won, even though he got fewer votes, because we can't lose, because we are, to quote Orban, we are the homeland. We are the voters who matter, and other people do not. When it is that type of populism, when it is a populism of of the minority, what does that kind of populism mean? I mean, it means that we probably should stop using the term populism because, again, it's misleading in a really funny way, right? It suggests that that it represents positions that appeal to a majority of the population that are popular and populist, when in fact there's a kind of bizarre logic at sort of positions that ought to be popular because I think they're right. And because I think they're right, I'm defining them as populist positions and I am delegitimizing any position that is in opposition to it and I will stop at nothing to make it happen. And uh, your definition of what populism is or has become, Jane, when I was listening to you, I thought to myself, well, that's just conservatism. That has right. been always the project of conservatism. And I right. I don't mean to sound controversial. I mean, this is, you know, my whole theory of the right is that it is a project of a an elite privileged minority that understands but that— an elite, an elite privileged minority that used to know they were an elite privileged minority. Like, that's— Exactly. That, like, they're like— no, what we're saying is always going to be unpopular. We will always be the people who tell you to eat your spinach and that the government can't spend everything. And then you have, in 2015, 2016, someone come in and be like, no, we don't have to do that anymore. And it's like, they they stayed the same in actuality. Trump's biggest achievement in 2017 was a tax bill. But then it's like they covered everything in icing and we're like, it's delicious now. You love it. Yeah. And I guess what I would add to that is that I think that what you just said about it's, you know, a position of people who used to be an elite and that now feel besieged, that I think also explains what Masha was talking about, which is this idea that, well, we're right and we know we're right, even though we're not really the majority. And that is because they're referring to a time not so long ago when they actually really did have quite a bit of power. And they can remember it in real time. I mean, the problem that the left always has had historically, you can't refer back to a time in recent memory when you had power. You're always having to create something that really has not existed. Whereas for the right, and and you see this during the backlash against the civil rights movement, they remember very clearly a time when Black people didn't have the vote. And so when they talk this way, even if they don't represent the majority, it's a kind of a temporal moment that they're referring to that did exist in real time. And I think that's part of what explains that kind of popular language. There's a part of this that I think it would be helpful for the left to grapple with, just as a reality that they are responding to. And that, you know, we need to sort of double down on our efforts, but understand, like, this is, these are the stakes there. It's not just that you're dealing with a Fox News brainwashed impervious to reason kind of minority here. Masha, if in 2024, the Republican Party does not pick Donald Trump, as could hypothetically happen, do you anticipate worry about the state of our democracy will lessen and will you be less worried? Um, you know, that's that's a fascinating question, right? Like the, the sort of the Trump versus not Trump dilemma as though there were a monolith on the non-Trump side. I mean, there are lots of really interesting people on the non-Trump side who I think are really scary, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Tucker Carlson, to name 
but two. But there's a lot more where that came from. And I think that that's something that we haven't talked about at all, which is that the Trump era in the Republican Party has spawned a new kind of politician, new kind of politics that can conceivably give us a, you know, that, that very scary thing that we kind of all agree on. I don't know that that's correct, that it's actually more scary, but a lot of people agree that, that a more competent version of Trump is more frightening. I think in part, you know, the incompetence is the point and it is a huge part of the, of the threat. But, but anyway, I mean, the answer to your question is, I fear that the non-Trump is, is not exactly a non-Trump. It's sort of a new generation of Republican politician who represents both the continuity in the Republican Party and the continuity with Trump. And that's a scary animal. Masha, Corey, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It was really great conversation. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Masha Gasson is a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of Surviving Autocracy. Corey Robin is a political scientist at Brooklyn College and author of The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. For more by our guests, I recommend the articles We Won't Know the Exact Moment When Democracy Dies by Masha Gasson in The New Yorker in April 2020 and Trump in the Trapped Country by Corey Robin in The New Yorker in March 2021. You can find links to all of these in our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elise Gutierrez, and Bishaka Durba. Edited by Alison Brujak and Annabelle Bacon. With original music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Michelle Harris. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Special thanks this week to Kristen Lynn. 